we are continuing our discussion on Ephesians. This is a nice TV. Look at that. That's nice and big. You, you all can see that in the back too, right? Good. Okay. So when I was uh, in college, I had friends uh, that had a clever idea, uh, which, yeah, that's just a heck of a way to start a story. Uh, we, 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 we went to school. We were in college in the greater Atlanta area. And uh, in that part of the world, there are all kinds of, of rivers and, uh, and, and waterways that you can uh, go down. And you'll, you'll often find people floating down, for example, the Chattanooga River. You'll see people with inner tubes or, or rafts, canoes, kayaks. Uh, and it's just a wonderful time to do that. My friends and I decided we wanted to partake of this activity in a canoe. Okay? Now, the tricky thing about a canoe is that it is a narrow water vessel. And depending on the specific build of the canoe you're in, they can be a bit unsteady. Especially if you have four dumb college kids in one canoe along with a cooler. Okay? Uh, it, it, was, it was a large canoe. Uh, plus the cooler, uh, beverages we imagined we'd be partaking in throughout our two-hour journey down the river. Four people, four paddles, and a cooler. It's really too much. Now, normally, this, this wouldn't have been a problem. This is normally not a problem because even if you're in a canoe and you're in the river and let's just say your canoe tips over, no big deal. That's why you go down the river. Sometimes you can't go down a river and not expect to get wet, right? Well, this was the middle of January. See, my genius friends and I decided it would be fun to go down the river in an unstable canoe in January. Just FYI, the average low temperature in Atlanta in January is around 32, 33 degrees. You know, freezing. <laughs> freezing, okay? Uh, we, we put our vessel in the water. Uh, we sat ourselves in said vessel. We shoved off. Immediately, we had this sense of foreboding. I remember thinking as we were only a few feet from the launch, there's no way this canoe isn't going to tip over. No way. And immediately it did just that. I remember as it tipped, I, I stuck my hand out as if, as if maybe my hand could prevent us from tipping over, you know, by resistance on the water. You know, like Jesus did when he walked on the water. But my hand provided no such resistance. It just, we just went right, right down into the water and, and into the ice cold water. All of us and the cooler. The cooler, not only did it fall out, but it opened up and, and all our sandwiches and everything started floating. They were in Ziploc bags, thankfully, and they, were, they started floating down the river along with it. And so we tried, so not only do you have to get up out of the water, you're in this ice cold water, but now you're trying to gather things and, and trying to, up, you know, make the, the, the canoe upright again. Uh, and and it, was, it, was, it was awful. I mean, I remember feeling like this is the coldest I've ever felt. Uh, now, here's the best part. The best part is my friend's dad dropped us off at the launch and took off. He was gone, okay? The cell phone hadn't been invented yet. Okay, our only course of action at this point was to go down the river. That was, our, that was the only way out of this, to go down the river to get to our car where we had parked at the end of, of, uh, of the journey. Two hours soaking wet to get to our car. And yes, we tipped the canoe over at least three or four other times as we were just going down the river like this and just kept getting wet over and over again. And it was just miserable. It was so miserable. It, and the worst part, again, it was right out of the gate, right out of the gate, not, not 10 feet off the shore, in the water, freezing cold, misery for the rest of our day, right? Now, last week when we started this series on Ephesians, I told you the benefit of going through a book like this verse by verse was that it forces you to take on the passages, the hard passages head on. You can't go around them. You got to do them, 
all right? There's no, there's no getting around it. And I mentioned last week that Ephesians has its fair share of hard passages. So guess what? Right out of the gate this week, right out of the gate, we're going to get dunked. <laughs> we're going to get dunked. So we're not five feet off the shore yet. And, and we're headed for wobbly, icy waters. Last week, when we looked at the first handful of verses, we explored the concept of every spiritual blessing. That was the, the main theme that was highlighted in, in, that, in that, those first three verses, every spiritual blessing. Uh, and when Paul speaks of every spiritual blessing, this is what we need to understand about that phrase, is that it, it's not just a nice pleasantry talking about blessing, right? But it's about being blessed in Christ. That was the emphasis last week. Being blessed in Christ makes all the difference here. Uh, when you're blessed in Christ, you have the inheritance of Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You have the, the right standing of Christ. When we are in Christ, we are grafted into him irreversibly. Irreversibly. Okay, so when the Father looks at you from a justification standpoint... He sees the sinlessness and righteousness of Christ that has been, the word that we use there is imputed to you. It's been imputed to you. It's been draped upon you, okay? So, so that's what we focused on last week. This week, we're going to notice a theme that will surface that has to do with the union of Christ and how, how you are in union with Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up, or you can follow along with me up here. And we'll start at verse 4, and we're going to go through verse 12. 4 to verse 12 in Ephesians chapter 1. And let's see if we can ascertain what the repeating theme is that we have. So this is Ephesians 1, 4 through 12, and it begins like this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, again, this is every spiritual blessing, right? Being in Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There it is. What is the theme that you might think that we're going to be dunked upon today or dunked into? Predestination. You didn't even have to think about that for five seconds, right? That it, it, and the thing is, it's, it's here. It's here in the passage. Like I said, we can't go around it. We're not going to go around it. Uh, this word has everything, that, everything to do with, uh, again, verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Being holy and blameless before him that's a good, succinct summary of what we've been talking about, every spiritual blessing. Holy and blameless is, is what Christ is, and that's to you. How did you get it? How did you get it? He chose you before the foundation of the world to receive that status. He chose you. He chose you. There we go. Kerplunk, right? Uh, we're all out of the canoe. So now, now when we speak about predestination, we have this tendency to, to oversimplify it a bit. Uh, sometimes we begin the discussion along the lines of, 
do you believe in predestination, right? Uh, or someone will say, um, uh, does this denomination believe in, in predestination? And from a Christian standpoint, asking that type of a question has a fundamental flaw to it. Uh, because here's the reality. Here's the reality. And, and this may come as a shock to you. Every Christian denomination, every Christian denomination believes in predestination. Every Christian denomination believes in predestination. What, what are you saying? How can that be? I've been to some churches that don't believe in predestination. Uh, I, I, not only that, I, I'm sure, I'm not sure I believe in predestination, right? The reason I say those statements have a fundamental flaw to them is because if you're a Christian, all right, and, and you believe the Bible, which every Christian should, then you have to believe in predestination because simply the Bible speaks of it. It's in the Bible. It uses the word predestination. So it's not really a question of, of do you or don't you believe in predestination. It's really a question of how you believe in, or how you interpret what Paul is saying when he speaks of predestination. Every Christian denomination has a doctrine of predestination. Everyone that I can think of, okay? However, what that means from denomination to nom denomination varies a little bit. It varies. Okay, so let's, let's look at Ephesians again. Ephesians 1, verse 11. When you read this sentence, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, we can't, we can't, we can't pretend that's not there. We can't, we can't stick our heads in the sand and say, eh, I don't know, <laughs> Something, someone, someone will figure that out, right? So for those of you that, that have no clue what I'm talking about when I say predestination, what do we, what do we mean by that when we, we talk about predestination? Does anyone have a basic definition they want to share with us? What are, we, what are we talking about when we're talking about predestination? Oh, no one wants to be the first one to speak up here. I know. Do you have something, someone? God's decided everything. There's our, there's our first submission. God has decided everything. Is, are, we, are we good with that one? Is everyone think? Is anyone? No. Should I put you on the spot? Who doesn't think <laughs> that God? No, no. You don't, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Does God decide everything, or is some are some things open, undetermined? Okay. Millie says, "I think we have free will." but God already knows what we're going to choose. Okay? Someone else? Anyone want to argue with Millie? <laughs> I'm trying to start a fight here. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. All right. Well, ever since the... Did, did, were you raising a hand? You were just... Okay, so inevitably, free will, predestination discussion. Inevitably, when we talk about predestination, someone wants to know about free will. If, in fact, everything is predetermined, what part does free will play into this? What part does the human will play into this? Whether it's free or not, right? These are all good questions, all great questions. But, and they've been going on ever since basically the onset of Christianity, since the, since the first century. Since the first century, the, the, this, the debate has gone, does God choose us for salvation? Starting with salvation, does God choose us for salvation or do we choose him? One side says, yes, he chose us. We were dead in sin. We had no hope. We rebelled against him and we were slaves to sin and dead in sin. In spite of that, by his own choosing, he breathed life into us, brought us to life and changed us. 
Okay, he chose us according to his own good pleasure. And now we are irreversibly his. So that's one side. Okay, then the other side essentially says God, God gave us all a choice. He gave us all a choice to choose him or not to choose him. And what that, that, that's what's meant by predestination is that, is that God looks down through the corridors of time and saw that in the year 2023 that you would look at Christ favorably and chose him so that you might be saved. So the father saw that down through the corridors of time that, that you would choose him. And therefore, he chose you before the foundation of the world because he effectively knew in your heart that you would, by your own free will, choose him. So those are the two basic sides of the debate, okay? And that's the first thing that I want to stipulate or mention. The second thing, which, which may or may not disappoint you, we're, we're not going to be able to get into the depths of every aspect of this discussion. We are going to skim the surface. We're going to, we're going to dig into it a little bit here, just enough to irritate you, okay? But again, as, as with any, if you get to find yourself at a place where you're like, I still don't get it, I don't understand it, and I, I need more, I need more. Please come talk to me. I'm always, I'm always available for those kinds of discussions and, and love them, okay? But again, we're, we're not going to ignore that. Here, what we have here, uh, what we have to look at and try and understand is what Paul is saying. And, and along with what he's saying, he's telling us this week uh, that, that this was his plan, that, that, that we would have forgiveness, and that the mystery, a word he uses in verse 9, would be revealed to us. And, and that this was a result of, of his choosing, God's choosing from the beginning of time, okay? When we t talk about mystery in verse 9, what, what are we talking about there? Anyone have any clue? What mystery? What's the mystery that is now revealed? Jesus Christ himself. Were you going to say something, Trudy? Or why we were chosen. That's still a mystery too. Yeah, because I don't know why. God, that, truthfully, I don't know why. If, if it does truly come down to he chooses some and not others, why he chose me, that is a mystery. I don't know. I don't know. I have no answer for that. The mystery he's referring to here is Christ, Christ himself. Okay, that this was once concealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints didn't know Jesus Christ's name, didn't know specifically who he was, but that's now revealed. They knew that there would be a sacrifice provided. They knew there would be a, a Messiah, and now that has been revealed. Moreover, whenever you hear about mystery, specifically in the New Testament, referring back some partially to the Old Testament, mystery also reveals to the, or refers to the fact that uh, what was once considered a Jewish religion, just for the Israelites only, is now open to every one of us, Jews and Gentiles. I would presume every one of us in this room would probably be of the Gentile variety, right? And here we are, we sit in this room, not as a part of, quote unquote, the original Israel. We are part of the, the greater Israel now, right? We are chosen. We're chosen in him, even though none of us can say, well, we are, we're Jewish. We're, we're of Gentile. We're the, we're the ends of the earth. You and I, we're the ends of the earth. That's a miracle. That's a mystery that's now revealed, okay? And if, and if that's the case, it begs the question, if we were chosen, if we were predestined to fulfill that purpose, where does that leave us? If that was our destiny, right, and if the choice was his, where does that leave us in terms of free will, right, in terms of human will at all? Okay, speaking broad, broadly now, uh, related to, to, to what, how I described it a moment ago, there, there are two camps, again, that would answer this question. The first camp says it is all about destiny. We can't, in terms of how human, human will interacts with, with history, we, we can't change history, says one camp. 
And, and this is really just an extension of this idea that we already talked about as it pertains to salvation, but now we're extending it out further. One camp says it's all about destiny. You can't change history. You may ask, can history be rewritten? Or will you find that as you try and rewrite history in the end, your effort to rewrite history is only helping something happen that was already written, <laughs> right? It, is, is, uh, it, it was written that you would try and rewrite history. Let me, let me try and simplify it a bit. Uh, did I choose the pants that I'm wearing today? Did I choose that? Or was it, or was it destiny that I would wear khaki pants today? Or that my, my wife would call them caramel, caramel color pants? Was it written that I would choose to wear these khaki pants today? Even though I sat in my closet at, at the last minute, I was thinking, I'm probably going to go with gray today. No, khaki. Did I choose that? Or was that my destiny to wear khaki pants today? That's one camp, okay? One camp would say it was your destiny to wear khaki pants today. You didn't choose it. The khaki pants chose you. <laughs> now, the second camp would suggest that absolutely nothing is predetermined. We're flying through history making choices, and those choices are shaping history. Those choices are shaping the way our tomorrow will pan out. That's what, that's what Marty McFly and, and Doc Brown said at the end of, of, uh, of uh, um, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. They said, uh, uh, your, your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one, right? So which is it? Am I shaping history through my choices, or are my choices already made for me. Well, the Bible says yes. <laughs> the Bible says yes. One of my favorite parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you've sat under my teaching for any amount of time, you've heard me say this dozens of times, but this is my favorite part of the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, 3.1. It says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Stop there and take a breath. He ordains well, I heard you. Thank you. He took a breath, right? What I said. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever. Yet so, here's the payoff, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, God is not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, let's pick this apart a bit. The first sentence tells us that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So that supports the, the worldview that says it's all about destiny. We're all just along for the ride and what will happen will happen. What that sentence is telling me is that it was God who determined from all eternally, freely and unchangeably ordained that I would wear khaki pants today. Right? And I even thought about asking Tracy, hey, which one should I wear today? Because that would really throw us for a loop, right? Was it Tracy's choice, my choice, or God's choice? But according to the Westminster Confession, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So really, it was God who picked out my khaki pants today. So there you go. It wasn't me or Tracy. But no, wait, there's more. Because the second half of the statement says, Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor violence offered to the will of the creatures. So I wasn't forced to wear khaki pants, right? I wore khaki pants because I wanted to wear khaki pants. I freely chose to wear khaki pants. Second causes aren't taken away, but established. In other words, God's will is established. And in our freedom, in our liberty, we make choices. And in those choices, freely, we accomplish the eternal decrees of God. Is your head spinning yet? 
Now, I'm going to be honest. At first, it does sound like a little bit of a cop-out. Okay, does God choose and plan our destiny or do we? And it sounds like what we're saying is, yes, both are true. Both are true. But it's an either-or proposition, isn't it? Isn't this a mutually exclusive choice? Does God plan it out and determine it all, or, or do we determine through our own choices? But the answer is yes to both. Okay? Is that what we're saying? Maybe one adjustment. Let's, let's say the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. How's that for confusing? That doesn't help at all, does it? So let, let's look back at it again, verses 11 to 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be, the, might be to the praise of his glory. Once again, what this is telling us is that God has a plan. And your decision, your choices, and absolutely everything else that ever happens in history is a part of that plan. And ultimately, they all work together to glorify Jesus. They glorify Jesus. Now, let me give you an illustration to wrestle with. This is one of my all-time favorites in the Bible. Uh, you'll hear this passage a lot when, uh, when we talk about these kind of things because it perfectly illustrates the tension that's at play here. All right? This is from Acts chapter 27. And a lot of you already know where I'm going with this. Beginning in verse 21, Paul and his crew, the Apostle Paul and his crew, had set sail for Rome. And on their way, Paul tells them, look, guys, we, we've, had some, we've had some rough weather so far. Our voyage is going to be disastrous if we keep going. They didn't listen to him, and they decided to keep going anyway. And of course, they encounter a storm along the way, and the ship was battered. So we'll pick up in verse 21 of chapter 27 of Acts, and it says this. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. No one likes an I told you so, Paul, but I told you so. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. This is what the angel said to Paul. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Wow. I love this passage. You see what's happening here? Paul is telling to them, take courage. I know we've had some rough weather, but take courage because not one of you will be lost. He's telling his whole crew, not one of you will be lost. God gave me the assurance that none of you are going to die. We'll lose the ship, but none of you are going to die. Well, that's a relief, isn't it? That's a big relief. Now, I want to make something clear. I'm not afraid of flying, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't have to travel as much now that uh, I used to, now that I'm on staff at the church, but every time I had to fly uh, and, and the aircraft started to taxi down the runway, my, my thoughts turned a little macabre. You know, ever, ever since the, the, the Captain Sully Sullenberger landed his plane in the uh, in the Hudson River. I think about that every time I get on a plane because you know what happened? They took off, hit some birds, <laughs> they started, they started, they went into the river. I think about that every single time and I can't help it. Aren't you looking forward to the next time you fly now? I think about it every single time, every single time. You know what I could use before each flight? Uh, 
I, I, would, I would love it if an angel of God came to me telling me, hey, it's going to be all right. You're going to make it there. You're going to make it there. Uh, you're not going to die. The, pl the, the plane might still go down, but you're going to be fine. Okay? You're going to be fine. You've you got to get to where you're going, so breathe easy. Wouldn't that be great? I would love that. I would love that. Boy, I, I'd rest easy knowing that, that, uh, that I was going to make it. And with that assurance, I could do whatever I wanted to on that plane. At 35,000 feet, I could open up the door and take a peek out, close it because God has given me the assurance, right? Right? That I'm going to make it. So I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Can I do whatever I want? You know what? This is what the assurance that Paul received. He said, you're going to make it, each and every one of you. If I were in that position, I'm, I think I'd want to take advantage of it too. I'd be like, great, we're going to make it. I'm going to jump out and go for a swim in the middle of the, why not? I'm going to make it, right? There's no need to hang on, no need to buckle up. I've already been told I'm going to make it. I could jump out and go for a swim. They could do whatever they wanted to, right? When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, whatever that is. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, let's get out of here, let's go for a swim, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the, uh, from the bow. That's the front of the boat, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Wait a minute. I thought they were told they were going to live. I thought, I thought God, it was God's predetermined plan, his plan from all eternity to pass, their destiny, that they would get to where they're going. And yet Paul is telling them, hey, if you do that, you can't be saved. You're dead. Does that mean that they could have changed God's plan? His plan to save all the men had, he had given to Paul? If they had gone in the lifeboat, they would have suddenly removed themselves from God's sovereign plan and suddenly God could no longer provide them protection? Is that, is that what's being said here? You see, here's the problem. You and I have this tendency to think linearly in terms of our timeline. You know why? Because that's the only reference for time. That we, that's the only thing we've ever lived in. That's the only experience we've ever had. And we can't imagine how life exists apart from it. Whereas God, God is not bound by time. And for some reason, we have a difficult time wrapping our minds around the fact that God is not bound by time. When we say that God isn't bound by space, usually we don't have a problem with that. We, we can wrap our minds around the fact that God is not bound by space. I can't be here and in Memphis at the same time. I would love to do that, especially this week, to be two places at once. I can't do that. I'm limited by space. Whereas God, will, will God be here in, in Nashville while I'm in Memphis? Yes, he will be. Will God be in Memphis while I'm in Memphis? Yes, he will be. He's not bound by space. No problem. I can wrap my head around that. No problem. God not bound by space. But time, God is not bound by time. We can't wrap our minds around that, even though 2 Peter 3, 8 says, right? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. We'll often read that verse and think, well, a long time uh, to us isn't a long time to God. But that's true. But there's more to it than that. 
it's not that it's just not a long time to him. It's that he's absolutely unaffected by time. God is unaffected by time. Time, time is a limiter. Time is a confiner. Time, time is a limit that binds you and me. God is not subject to any limits. So how does that relate back to, to our choices? Well, we, we tend to think in terms of cause and effect, right? A happened, therefore B must happen. A caused B to happen. Not so with God. A exists, B exists by his choosing, and it's up to him whether or not A has any effect on B whatsoever. His plan exists, and your choices exists, exist, and it's up to him to determine whether or not one will intersect with the other. We tend to think it's a 50-50 proposition or maybe even 80-20, right? But the Bible says, no, it's 100% and 100%. You are 100%, hear me, you are 100% responsible for your actions. You are 100% responsible for your actions. And yet God is 100% in charge. This is one of the most practical things that the Bible ever shows us. Because on the one hand, this means you are responsible. God holds you responsible. You, you are able to mess things up. Therefore, you should work with every fiber of your being to be wise and skillful and do the right thing. With every fiber of your being. This is why we're told in, in Philippians 2.12, another one that I like to bring out, this is a, this is greatly illustrates. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out, work out your own salvation. We're talking about sanctification here, not justification. You've been justified, but your sanctification says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Once again, both, both and. This is both and. Work out your own salvation and it is God who works in you to fulfill his purpose. That means you're an active participant in bringing about the plan of the Lord. Be responsible. Don't jump out of the ship. Don't jump out of the ship and try and sneak into the lifeboat. On the other hand, the Bible says, in the end, you can relax. You can relax. Your lives are going to be spared. And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, you can rest in that. You can rest in that. So, so, so what we can say is, put it this way, penultimately, penultimately, you can mess things up, but ultimately, you can't. You can't. Ultimately, you can't derail the plan of a sovereign God. You can't do it. He is bringing about his will, and he's weaving together and shaping your choices and your decisions into his tapestry, and it will ultimately bring about the exact plan that he set out to do. Okay? So why does he do it this way? This takes us to verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 1. In order that, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So that's the point of his plan. That's the point of his plan. The point of his plan is to glorify Christ. Okay, suddenly this, this moves our focus. Okay, because, because at, the, at the heart of the issue, what we want to know is, is if anything I do ever makes a difference for anything. That's, that's at the heart of what we're asking. Is, is, are the decisions that I make, do, do they have anything to do with anything? Right? And from what we've read and, and gone through today, we have to say, well, yes, our decisions and actions matter. 
we are held responsible for our actions. Well, okay, so what comfort is that? To that, Paul answers, that's not the point. Yes, we have every spiritual blessing. Yes, he saves us from all eternity past, but ultimately his purpose from all eternity past was to bring Christ glory. That's his, that's his, that's his ultimate purpose, to bring Christ glory. The relationship of Jesus Christ to everybody in the world and everything in history were made for him. It was for him. We're made for him and we will only find fulfillment in him. So now we're back to what we talked about last week, every spiritual blessing. So when you start asking these things, you have to, you have to marry this idea of predestination is, or does my responsibility, do I, my decisions matter? Yes, because you're in Christ and in Christ, your decisions bring about, bring about things that, that maybe you aren't aware of. He's still doing his will. He's still doing well in and through your decisions, in and through your freedom, okay? And so, so what's happening is that God is bringing about everything to a place where finally Christ is ruling the earth again and making it new all over again, all right? So however we choose to view the, the foreordaining purpose of God, it's for his own glory that's put on display and his own pleasure that's fulfilled. And depending on how you look at it, fortunately or unfortunately, right, there is no greater purpose or higher calling. The fact that we get to participate on this on any level, on any level whatsoever, is nothing short of miraculous. Being in Christ, right? Let me stop there because we are at 9.40. That'll give us maybe about five minutes for Q&A or just questions in general or observations, comments, and then uh, we gotta clean this, this stuff up uh, before everyone else comes in. So questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Emily. Yes, yes, and, and you and I too. Okay, so first of all, Paul does have a specific audience he's speaking to. He's speaking to that church in, in Ephesus, which would have been in the first century. And so there's a specific message that he's talking to them in, in reference to the idea that, yeah, you are chosen. You original uh, disciples of Christ, those first, you're establishing the church, you're building the church. You've been predetermined, predestined in God's plan to be this church. But again, so that's the application. That's, 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 the, that's the original context. But then we can read that and say, okay, how do we apply that passage to us? And, and is it any different? It's not that suddenly that the idea of predestination expires in the first century. By God's foreordaining plan, he established that church in Ephesus that would carry parts of Asia Minor, all, all, Asia Minor all throughout the first, second, and into third century. Uh, but again, so we look at that and say, is, that, is God operating differently now? Is God operating differently now in the 21st century? No, there's still a predetermined plan, a predestined plan that, that is still carrying out. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone else? Yeah, Howard. Hang on, Howard, let me give you the microphone here so, so everyone else can hear what you're saying too. Mm -hmm. I've been focusing on this chapter for a month or so, and I just want to read a few verses. Um, so Paul talking about Gentiles being grafted in. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so starting in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the, apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now skipping down a little bit. Uh, verse 19. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Hmm. So just that amazing picture of how he grasps us in, but also he warns us not to be proud of that, to continue by faith. Right. It, it, it perfectly ties into the, everything that we're saying here, that yes, yes, there, there is, there, there's a sovereign God at play here. There's a sovereign plan at play, but also... Yeah, you, that doesn't mean you're free to, to sit back and, and relax and do nothing and not work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, and again, this is a consistent message throughout the Bible. This is not something you just find in Ephesians or just find in Romans. It's repeated over and over again. You see it through the Old Testament and the New. Uh, this, this is how God operates. It's difficult sometimes for us to wrap our minds around it. But if you can get to a place where you say, you know what? And this, this was the difference maker for me. I'm infinite. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> There's something I've been meaning to tell you guys. <laughs> Figured this is as good a time as any. Five minutes before church. <laughs> I'm finite. And I just proved it, right? I'm finite. I'm finite. God is infinite. And, and again, what we're trying to do, is in a, and I don't mean for this to be a cop-out, uh, but, but it does cause you to take a step back and recognize your place in the economy of redemptive history, okay? Uh, you're, 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 you're a blip on the radar. And I don't, I don't mean to insult you with that, but that's the reality of, of, of what we're talking about here. God is infinite. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's, he's uh, omniscient, omnipotent, all those things that we are not. And so to, to, to try and wrap your mind around some of this, yes, it's difficult. And, and in the same way that we, we like to say that, uh, uh, we don't like to say it, it's true, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. I don't have reference for that. I've never seen that. But yet God says, this is so. This is the way it is. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. But just because our minds don't wrap, wrap around it doesn't mean it, it can't, it, it doesn't exist, right? And so that's, that's, I think the first place you have to land in, in reference to all this is that I, I'm a limited creature here. Uh, and uh, and I, if I can't wrap my mind around that, that doesn't mean that it, it can't be so. Uh, that's the first step. That's the first step in this whole conversation that you have to acknowledge is that I am finite. I'm very finite. Uh, someone else, one more comment before we wrap it up? That's Dean. The, mm -hmm. the that we have. No, don't get, hold on, hold on.
I'm the master of my own destiny. That's that. That is sort of the uh, the, uh, the the creed that a lot of us, uh, you know, before we were in Christ, cling on to. And again, if if you go all the way back to the garden, go all the way back to the garden. That's 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 what it boils down to. It's 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 a declaration that I want to be God. I want to be God. That was the temptation that was laid out for Adam and Eve. Would you like to be like God? And they said yes. Okay, and so that's what, that's what we, to this day, we're called to lay aside. It's our temptation to, to try and be in the driver's seat. It's our temptation to, to, to want to uh, ordain whatsoever comes to pass, when again, that is not within our purview. That, that exists with God and God alone, okay? And again, it's, it's the same, same thing that we've been dealing with all throughout history. It's a good way to frame that, the idolatry of, 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 uh, of freedom. What'd you call it? The God of true free, free will, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate thing. It's the ultimate thing. All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's put a cap on it there. And this is, uh, that takes us to 948. Uh, and again, you're already at church. You're welcome. Uh, could, uh, could I have someone close in prayer? Who wants to close us in prayer? You say a quick word of prayer. Come on. Don't be shy. Spencer. Okay. I see that hand. I see that hand. Do you want to use the microphone or just talk loud? Okay. You talk loud. Go ahead.